So um, I want you to fix your eyes on this this morning. Not this one. This is a microphone. This is a razor. This is a razor. I want you to think about that. It's a razor. So, uh, no, it is a razor. Those people who aren't sure, that's a razor. We'll come back to the razor, I hope. Let's leave it there so we remember. Um, thanks, Dave. That was really good to hear that story um, about the Bible and about the disciples um, and about faith. And I want to just start with a passage in Luke chapter 2. And there is really only one story in the Bible about Jesus as a young boy. Um, in fact, there's really only one story in the Bible between Jesus when he's about two and about 30. One story. Um, if you've got a Bible, it's in Luke chapter 2, and it starts at verse 41. Um, and it's the story of Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old. Um, and 12 is quite significant for the Jews um, because at 13 you hit something called a bat mitzvah um, or a bar mitzvah, depending on whether you're a girl or a boy, um, and then you become an adult. So 12 is interesting. It's the last year you're a child um, as a Jew. And it says this, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. So it's an Old Testament Passover. We're not going to go into that, but it's a festival. They went to the temple. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival had finished, while his parents were going home, and this is a long journey, it's not just like I live down the road, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. So they travelled on for, let's say, 24 hours. They're walking, they've probably got donkeys, they wouldn't have been just a couple of them, there'd have been a group of them. They keep walking. And then they started looking for him among the relatives and the friends. So it's a big group. They couldn't just go, hang on, he's not here. They started looking around this big group. They couldn't find Jesus, the 12-year-old Jesus. So when they thought after obviously exploring, they couldn't find him. They went back to Jerusalem to look for him. It's a long walk. It's dusty. It's busy. They went back looking for him. After three days, three days, they found him. Okay, so they'd been walking out of the city for a day, three days of looking for him, and then they found him. They probably weren't that chilled. Okay, they probably were not that calm. But where they found him was in the temple courts, right at the top of the hill in Jerusalem. And they found him sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him, that's Jesus, was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So he got it. And he was asked questions, and he gave awesome answers to the questions. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. So why were they astonished? Were they astonished because they saw him speaking in this way? Or were they astonished because they thought, what on earth are you doing, son? We've been looking for you basically for four days, and you're here, sat here, talking and chatting with the blokes who are meant to know everything, you are an absolute naughty boy. 
But his mum says this, son, why have you treated us like this? How dare you? It's outrageous. Your dad and I have been anxiously searching for you for days. So Jesus says, I'm really sorry, mum and dad. Jesus says, why? Why are you looking for me? Okay, son, let's spell it out for you. Because we all... Why? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? They didn't get it. They did not understand what he was saying. They didn't get it. Then he went down to Nazareth with them. So there's, there's a gap. Don't know what happened in that gap. That might be an interesting conversation. But he went back to Nazareth. It's a long way from Jerusalem to Nazareth. You can't knock that up in a day. It's a few days if you're walking. And he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured up these things in her heart and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and with men. Morning. We're going to leave that there for a moment, just like we're leaving the razor, and we will come back to both of them as we go through this morning. One of my aims today is that if you're listening on the tape, you enjoy it, but if you're here, you enjoy it more. Because we've made the effort, I know people have got busy lives, we're here, let's hopefully feel that God is going to give us something here today that makes it feel like I am glad I'm in this building at this time. So over, yeah, over the last few weeks, Rich has started talking again about Jesus. And there's been a theme that we've started, um, because Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. And we're approaching it quickly. Our theme is going to be about learning to live like Jesus leading up to Christmas. And what we're going to do is focus on just some areas in detail. So you may have picked up at the baptism last week. Rich talked about living a life that looks for lost people. And if you've seen the life of Jesus or read about it or thought about what you're doing as a Christian Living a life looking for lost people is like being like Jesus. So that is really significant. Today, I was going to speak about looking at a holy, good and virtuous life. That was the plan. And then we were going to hear from Katie, who was going to talk about living a spirit-empowered life. And then we were going to hear from Dave, who was going to talk about living a word-centered life. Then we're going to hear from Jody living a compassionate life. And then Drew Most, who's a Bible scholar and translator, is going to talk about living an incarnational life. Carne means meat. Incarnational means you become meat or you become flesh. So we're talking about Jesus. Last week leading up to Christmas, he became flesh. But as I'm looking at this and thinking, okay, we're going to look at holy, good and virtuous, I started reading. And I'm really grateful to Rich and to Jody and to Drew for having a quick look at some of my thoughts on this. Because the more I looked at it, the more I found holiness difficult. Now, some of you might find holiness easy. Great. Um, I don't find it easy, and I don't even find it easy understanding it. And the more I read, the more I thought, actually, this is quite a difficult concept. 
So I'm going to start with something really simple. The simple thing is this. We are called Christians. Let's start with the easy. We're called Christians. You don't need to be an expert in the Bible to understand that the word Christian starts with Christ and ends with Ian. Okay? Now, we're not going to talk much about Ian, but we will talk about it as what is called a suffix. In other words, it's a bit of a word that goes on the end. But let's start with Christian. So it's a Greek word, um, and the word Greek means... Christian means follower of Christ. But most Greek words have a kind of Hebrew sense to them, which is they kind of borrow from other words for meaning. So the word Christ means anointed one, anointed one. And in the Bible, you anoint people to do something. You anoint them for a purpose. So we are basically followers of the anointed one. Because Ian basically means you belong to or you follow or you're a slave to. So we are a slave to, so if you've got any friends called Ian, they're slaves. Um, But we are slaves to the anointed one. And this term Christian that we use all the time and people use about us all the time is in the Bible three times. It only comes up three times in the Bible. The first time is when they're talking in Antioch, which is a place where Barnabas brings Paul, who was called Saul, and they do some teaching. And it says the disciples, the disciplined people following Jesus, were first called Christians there. And a little bit later on in Acts 26, one of the leaders called Herod says to Paul, whoa, you almost convinced me to be a Christian there. And a little bit later on in 1 Peter, which I know is one of Jill's favorite books, it says, if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. Now, Antioch's an interesting city because Antioch liked giving people nicknames. So it's likely that this phrase Christian, follower of Jesus, was probably a nickname. And it probably was a negative nickname. Oh no, there go the Christians. There go the slaves of that man Jesus. That's probably why Herod said, you almost convinced me to be a Christian fool. Lucky you didn't in his brain. And one of the early Roman writers, a guy called Tacitus, wrote in the first century and said, by vulgar naming, they were commonly called Christians. So basically, it's a rude term for a group of people that weren't understood, that were different and that seemed really weird. The Greeks, the Jews and the Romans didn't like the Christians because they were different. They were weird. They were given this phrase, Christians, as a negative thing. And many of you know that obviously there was lots of persecution of Christians at that time. But it certainly makes sense for us to run this little series on living like Jesus because we are slaves of Jesus. We are Christians. And if you're a slave of someone, 
and in our case, willing slaves, we're choosing to be slaves of Jesus, then becoming a Christian is our choice, and we want to understand this person, Jesus, that we are a slave to. So it's absolutely right that this morning our songs are all about Jesus, focusing on Jesus, thanking Jesus for who he is. We are Christians, we are followers of the anointed one, Jesus. And as we come out of this global pandemic, which is still there, people have really seriously thought about how they live their lives. What are they doing? What's important to them? Even who do they want to live with? And so for some of us, it's thrown us right back to what we believe, who we follow, what we think is important. And obviously, as Christians, we believe it's Jesus. We believe he's got the keys to eternal life. We believe he's got the answers to the problems that the world faces. We believe that he will come back for us in the coming years. And we believe that whatever comes up, however difficult, however challenging, he is the answer. He is the anointed one. So we are going to turn our eyes on Jesus. We are going to look full in his glorious face. And what we're going to do it through is thinking about holiness. So, if you look the word holy up, you get a few different answers. And what I want you to do is just spend a second now thinking holy, holy. What does that word holy mean to you? So, Holy is something we talk about all the time. It feels like it means being good. It might feel like it's about, I've got to do good things. It might sort of have conjured up, oh, like halos and saints. God is holy. Jesus is holy. You don't get drunk and sleep around. That's not very holy. It's about your behavior. You do holy things. Christians have got to be holy. They've got to do good things. They've got to like pray. That's a holy thing to do. Or maybe give loads of money away. Although it's not about silver and gold. Don't do bad things. Holy people don't do bad things. So the Merriam-Webster dictionary gives us this definition. It says, holy is religiously or morally good. Exalted or worthy of devotion perfect in goodness and righteousness. Now, I'm not sure that's right, that dictionary definition. So we did a bit of digging, and this is what we came up with. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. Only thou art holy. Only thou art holy, has that song. The Old Testament says to believers, be holy, as I am holy. And that is repeated in the New Testament. Be holy as I am holy. So we're going to start right back in the Old Testament with this holiness. In the Old Testament, there are some books that you won't have read. Some books that some of us, that's a bit unfair, some of us may have read the whole Bible a few times. But we probably don't go to Leviticus and read it every few months just for fun. Um, we probably don't read all that many books in the Old Testament through for fun. But 
In the book of Leviticus, there are lots of people called priests and ministers, and they minister to God in the tabernacle. And that is just weird. So it's a book called Leviticus. It's got loads of laws in it. There's a tabernacle. We don't even know quite what that is. It's like a moving building thing, like a big kind of uh, marquee. We probably get bits about the objects in the temple. We probably have watched Raiders of the Lost Ark more recently, maybe, or more likely than that we've read the whole of Leviticus. And in Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's an ark. Yeah, we're nodding at me. A big ark, a big gold ark. And you remember they look at it at the end, spoiler coming up, and when they look into it, the guy melts. Okay, so I'm just giving you a clue. So it's not going to be a shock now, but that is what happens in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's an old film, if you haven't seen it, if you don't know that. But anyway, it's an ark. If you look in the ark, if you touch the ark, it melts you. It kills you. And the reason is because the ark is holy. It's different and it's separate. And the ark is meant to do one thing. Now, clearly, an ark cannot be good. It cannot be morally good. Like a, a chair, that's not like a good chair. I mean, it might, you might feel good sat on it, but it can't have good moral judgment, okay? So holiness cannot be about us living good lives. That's not the definition of what it means. And it certainly can't be about perfect, because that isn't a perfect chair, at least some of these chairs are not perfect because we see a pile of them that keep breaking. So they're not great. And in Hebrew, every word, as we've said, has some kind of root to it. So the Hebrew word for holy is makodesh, which is linked to the other Hebrew word, which basically means makadesh, which is holy. So there's a bit of a cycle going on here. But what that word makadesh means is set aside for a purpose. Set aside for a purpose. Now that chair might be a holy chair if it's set aside for a purpose. You are meant to sit on it. It's got a purpose. And that links for the Jews to one of their names of God, which is Jehovah Makadesh, which means God is holy. So when the Bible talks about holiness, the first thing it's saying is not purity or righteous or good things. It's saying it's set apart to do a specific job. So think about my razor. A few days ago, my Fisco razor from China started doing things it was not set apart to do. It started cutting my face. And uh, I work in a school. I had a lot of meetings coming up with lots of important people. And one morning, my razor cut my face. And it cut my face here. And no amount of skill or work seemed to stop my bleeding face. And I was in school. You know, there's a technique called put a bit of paper on it. Um, but that looks a bit weird if you're doing an assembly in school <laughs> or if you're sport, sort of talking to governors. So I had to get rid of my razor and get a new razor so that my razor could do what it was set apart, meant, designed to do, which is cut my face properly. Properly. So similarly, think about your house and your toaster. 
You do not put fingers in toasters. They're not designed for that. Worse, you do not put forks in toasters. They are not designed for that. You put bread in toasters, or maybe crumpets or muffins, because they're nice. Um, try and put something else in there, like half an avocado. They're not designed for half an avocado in a toaster. Anyone done it? Yeah, that's the thing where, you, yeah, yeah, I do it every day, actually, and it's really nice. It, like, crisps it. So maybe you've got an avocado toaster, just so that my kind of theme works. Um, but the point is this. Holy means designed and set apart for a purpose. You have a holy toothbrush. You might try and clean something with it and find it works really well, like the spokes of a bike. But you don't lend your toothbrush to someone else, usually. Okay, unless you've got a really great marriage or like a kid who like literally does it without telling you. But the toothbrush is holy because it's designed for a purpose and it is your toothbrush. And it is a holy toothbrush. These are not morally good things. They are set apart for a purpose. So now when we think about the Old Testament, we think this. Israel was a holy nation. It was set apart for a purpose. It was not necessarily perfect. There were lots of things that went wrong with it. It wasn't always doing the best of things, but it was set apart. It had a purpose, and the Jews still believe they are set apart as a holy nation. So when we then read about be holy as I am holy, what we're thinking is this. We cannot of ourselves be perfect. If we could, we don't need a saviour. We don't want or need one who is anointed with the purpose of saving the world. So when we're being holy, the good news is this. It's not saying you've got to be sinless or perfect. What we are being told is to be unique to be different from our surroundings, and to continue doing what we were made to do. So going back to something we heard a little bit early, some of you might have heard this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Revelation, it tells us the angels say that day after day after day after day after month after year in the presence of God. Why do they say, holy, holy, holy? Because for us, we probably think, maybe I could make a day of it. Maybe I could make, I don't know, could I make a day of just going, holy, holy, holy? If I was married to somebody awesome, could I spend a day just going, you are awesome. You are awesome all day. Could I make a life out of it? The thing is, the angels aren't bored because what they're doing is this. They are saying, Jesus, get ready. You're unique. You're different. There is nothing like you. There has never, ever been anything like you. What you are and what you've done is beyond anything that has ever been and ever will be. You are so different. You are so perfect. When you do that, it's different and it's amazing. When you do that, it's different and amazing. We don't understand you. We saw you do that, but we still don't get it. But you're amazing. There's no one like you. There's nothing like you. When you were in that situation there and there was no way out, how did you do that? When there was that situation going on there, how did you do that? When we were trying to get away all these Israelites from the Egyptians, how did you make that sea split apart? 
When I was in that depression and there was no way out, how did you do that? How, Jesus, did you do that? God, you are so different. You are bigger. I think I understand how to plan my life. I think I've got this going and then something goes wrong. And then you save it. You come in and you sort it out. How can you be so loving? How can you be so kind? I can't do it. I get so annoyed with people and so irritated. How can you be so gracious and so compassionate? There's nothing like that. Okay, so that's like two minutes or three minutes. And they go on because everything within them is going, God, you are different, unique. You have a person, you're transcendent, etc., etc. So holiness is not about perfection. It's about being focused on a purpose. So we started this morning with this story about a little 12-year-old boy. How does that story tell us that Jesus was focused and set on his purpose? Well, it certainly shows him as different because everybody else had been to the festival and was going home and having a chat about it. He stayed, and he stayed in his father's house because he loved talking to people about God. He loved talking to people who knew stuff about God. He loved thinking about God. He loved answering questions about God. He confuses his earthly parents. He confuses his friends and his family, and he amazes people with his wisdom as he thinks and talks about God. And It tells us in John, John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, I have come from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I'm here to do what my father wants me to do. So Jesus' focus, his mission, his purpose is utterly secure, and it comes from knowing who he is and what he's got to do. And you see it all the way through Jesus's life. You see a confidence in, I'm here to do this, I don't do this. So the first time he's asked to do something, which is probably change water into wine, he says, hang on a minute, my time hasn't come. And they say, come on, man, it's a party. And he says, okay, then, I'll just change a little bit of water into wine. And as we know, it's a lot of water into wine. Interesting. So you might be able to convince Jesus by talking about things that are positive and joyful. But Jesus doesn't just do that kind of stuff. He says, I'm only going to do what I know my father's got for me. So... Even at the end, when he's sat in that garden and he's thinking, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die on the cross. That is not a fun thing to do. That is not like changing water into wine. I know, though, it's my purpose. He says, not my will, but your will. Your purpose for my life, God, whatever that might be. So by focusing like Jesus on what God wants us to do, we are going to find an antidote to the freneticism Yeah, the like busyness of the world. The world is frenetic. People run around doing this and that and this and that. And on my worst days, I come out of my office and I honestly do this. 
I can't remember quite what is the next most important thing to do because there are so many, oh, I could see that, oh, hang on, though. oh, but there's that there. You almost spin around. And I'm sure sometimes some of us feel so overloaded with stuff and things that we are spinning in our heads or we don't know where to go or what to do. But by knowing that we are here to do the purposes of God, there is a sense of calm and of peace that comes to us, which is why Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So that's a bit about Jesus, and I guess the question then is, as part of our series, what does it mean to us? So the first thing is some good news. You are not here as the Anointed One. You are not here to save the world. Somebody's done that for us. Jesus has done that for us. You are also not here to be perfect. You are not here to be perfect. Our holiness is like Jesus' holiness, but it is slightly different. And the first thing I want to suggest is this. Your holiness, your distinctness, your difference in the world partly comes from being part of the church. And I've heard lots of people who are Christians say, well, I don't need to go to church. Or even, um, I haven't quite found the right church. So I say to them, come to our church, it's perfect. Actually, I don't. And in fact, I've even been told off before by someone who said, but why do you talk about your church and you don't like sell it? And I, and I sort of thought of that and I thought, well, no, but I'm not, I don't need to sell it. It's my church. But I did think, no, but hang on, I'm part of it. I need to big it up a bit more because the church is God's body on earth. So I've got to be careful of what I say about it. And whatever I feel about individuals, let's say you think what I say today hasn't been that, that great. Fine. You tell me, you talk to us about it, we think about it, we talk it through. Or you think somebody's been rude to you in church. You talk to them, you work it out. Because the church is the body of Jesus on earth. So the first bit of your mission and your purpose is to be part of the church. And there are two basic images for the church on earth. One is a body and one is a bride. One is a body and one is a bride. So one of your purposes, being part of the church, is to be part of the body and to play your part. Now, I'm not going to go into all the stuff about the body's got, like, fingers and knuckles and, you know, bottoms and, you know, all kinds. Careful. But what I want you to think about is your distinctiveness, your uniqueness, has to find its part in the body. That's not always easy because sometimes you might be looking at people or seeing people and thinking, wow, they are quite different from me. Well, that's exactly the point of a body. If all of us looked like fingernails, we'd be in big trouble as a body. If all of us operated like hearts, we'd be in big trouble. If all of us operated like brains, the body is not just one big brain. The body has all these different, unique, amazing things that make it work well. So the church, as the body of Jesus, shows a mission and has a purpose on the earth. And it's about unity and completeness and disagreeing but still loving. We can show that 
as part of our nature. We are his representatives and we are here to help a broken, hurting world understand what Jesus is like. The second thing is we're a bride. Now, the bride is a really different image to the body. The body is like all these different things, doing all their different ways together as a sort of uniqueness. But the bride is really different. If you're a bride, we're talking really about being beautiful and about love. We're designed to love the bridegroom, Jesus. So the songs that Chris chose today, there's something coming through Chris as he's choosing them and selecting that says, we're here to worship Jesus. We're here as a group of people, as well as individuals, to worship Jesus. And the Church of England has got this thing called the Catechism, the Westminster Catechism, and it says, man's chief end, the point of people, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's part of what we're here to do. We're here to glorify God, just keep pointing to God and enjoy him. So one of your jobs, as you're out there in the world, is to point people to the saviour, to the unique God. Obviously, brides are normally in white. They are normally clean, they are normally pure, they are normally spotless. So we do have to be different from the world. We have to be as pure as we can be. We have to be holy in the sense of being like Jesus. He was different. That doesn't mean we can't go into some of these places, but it does mean we have to look very carefully at what we do. But then there's another point to this, which is also just as exciting. And that point is this. The purpose that we have as holy people is within this group, but it's also individual. Now, those of you who like kind of to think and think, this is quite a recent concept. If you went back a thousand years, two thousand years, the purpose that people as individuals had was not really something that was spoken about. But now, what we talk about is saying, as a follower of Jesus, you, 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 me, we are called to behave in a certain way. And you will remember that Jesus called his disciples away from things. It might have been away from their family. It might be away from their job as fishermen. He said, come away from what you are doing and come and be different with me. So, first of all, to be a follower of Jesus, we've got to imitate him. We've got to imitate him. We are not Jesus, but we want to be like Jesus. How do we work that out? Well, obviously, the easy thing is we can read the Bible and we can look at what Jesus is like. We can pray about it. We can ask the Holy Spirit to help us be more like Jesus. We can have valuable friends who will help us. We can come to church and talk about these things. Secondly, we individually, as part of the church, can think about what exactly, what exactly has God got for me? So in Ephesians 2.10, there's one of, I know Rich and I, our favourite verses, which is, we are God's workmanship, created for good works, which he prepared for us in advance. And if you know 
the Psalms. There's this lovely Psalm that talks about us being knitted together in our mother's womb. Now, this is about us as individuals. So each of us as individuals is unique and is special. And that word workmanship is about being a masterpiece. So whatever you feel like as an individual, you are a masterpiece. That is what Jesus, that is what God says about you. You are not called to be an imitator of Michelle or of Rich or of Katie. You're called to be an imitator of Jesus. And you are certainly not asked to be jealous. In fact, you are told not to be jealous of others. So what is it that we as individuals are meant to do? There are these obvious things when we were going through the Sermon of the Mount during lockdown. There were some things there that we could see Jesus telling the church to do and to be. Firstly, you pray. Christians pray. Christians fast. Christians serve others. They give. They love people. They make disciples. That's not difficult to find that stuff out. But sometimes we get really kind of caught, like really bound up with, but what's God doing for me? What, what's God got for me? What's God got for me? I really need to know. God, what have you got for me? And actually, some of the things we can get on and do are so obvious. We can do good things. We can love people. We can share with people. So how do we find that distinctiveness, that thing that you're meant to be, without getting too stressed and worked up about it? So I guess one of the things for me is just close your eyes for a minute or just go away for a little bit and think about what it is that gets your heart pumping, what gets you excited. Jesus. And it might be Jesus. It might be Jesus. But do you know what? It might be Debden. It might be Debden. Or it might be Epping Forest. Or it might be people who've got disabilities. Or it might be teaching people. Or it might be getting kids to understand things. Or it might be you just love it, giving money away. It actually gives you a buzz to give money away. Not all of us. Or it might be that you just think to yourself, I love talking to people about Jesus. That's just what I just love doing it. I just can't stop doing it. It doesn't matter whether your thing is different from somebody else's, but you need to talk to other people about what that thing is. And if it does feel black enough or dark enough or confused enough that you're like, do you know what? I'm just da 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 Then talk to people. I frequently talk to people and say, I just, I'm doing that, I'm and they'll say, okay, so why are you doing that? What do you feel? What's led you to be involved in that? And we'll say, okay, I'll, I'll stop doing that. But I really want to do this. I just, this thing, I just, I never stop having energy for it. It never tires me out. I'm always excited about it. That's what I'm, and then you get your friends alongside you. You pray, you say, is this it? Is this what I should be doing? Now, of course, you can't say, but I don't feel that excitement for the dishes. So that's not my calling, God. 
That's not the thing. Now, obviously, we thought, you know, I don't get excited about changing nappies. You know, God has not, you know, he's not laid that on me. That must be yours, you say to your partner. <laughs> must be yours. I try it with grandparents. It must be your grandparents. It must be you who need to give to my children because it's not there in my heart. Give them money. Do you feel that? So this is fun. This is not designed to be painful and difficult. We shared that story of Jesus talking and turning water into wine because it's a weird story. He starts by saying, no, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, not quite ready yet. And they go, come on, more wine, more wine. The catechism says our aim, our end, our purpose is to enjoy God. To enjoy God. Jesus did not die so that we would be down in the dumps. How does that make any sense? How does the one who is anointed with the purpose of saving us so that we can be really negative about ourselves and about others and about our purpose and about that world. How does that make any sense? The opposite is the truth. It says in the Bible, fan into flame the gift that is inside you. Fan it into flame. What is the thing that gets you excited? What is the thing that you think, that is what I want to do? That's what I want to do. I'll do it within a church context, and I'll do it within the context of the Bible, and I'll do it with the Holy Spirit helping me, but I'm going to fan into flame the things that make me rock for Jesus, the things that make me excited for Jesus. We need to be and to do the things that we are created to do. Should we pray for a bit? Let's pray. Jesus, we start by saying there is no one like you. There is nothing like you. Nobody else, nothing else fills us with that sense of purpose and meaning and hope and gives us eternal life. And however we feel this morning, we are so grateful that you did that. You did not stop. We thank you, Lord, that you took on a purpose and a mission as the anointed one to give us life in all its fullness. Lord, we want to know your purpose for us today. And we want now, Lord, just to reflect on you like we've been doing this morning. And we want to lay ourselves before you and say, Lord, what have you got for us? We want to serve you. We're your willing slaves. We're your willing slaves, Lord. We want to help each other as a church group here. We want to help each other do the things that you've got for us. We don't want to be jealous of each other. We don't want to be critical. We want to help each other fulfill the purpose of God in our lives.